Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Crazy Wisdom podcast, and my guest here is Peter Rex, who has some great things to share with us today about the connection between creativity and stress, and I'll let him uh, introduce himself. Yeah, Stuart, great to be here. Uh, first, I want to open up by thanking you for really setting up a podcast that is aimed at helping out a lot of people who have been in the same exact position we've been in, coming out of, you know, whether it's our profession, trying to figure out a new position or what we're going to do next or just coming out of college and not really knowing what the heck's going on, which way is up, you know? And I think it brings a lot of value and it's something I wish I had as a, access to as a resource coming out of college as well. That type of uh, wisdom and, and advice, especially the crazy type, which is pretty much the type that we're gonna be talking about today. So yeah, so who am I for the listeners? Um, my name is Peter Rex and uh, why should you listen to me? Maybe you shouldn't, but uh, here's my background. I Right now, I'm building the largest company that's ever been built, and we're in the middle of grinding on that. And it's you know realistically going to be that big. It's going to be the number one largest. And my background before this was I built a billion and a half real estate company, a billion and a half in assets, and went to Harvard Law School. Um, and went to 85 countries developing the concept around trust work. So that's it. You want to follow me? Follow me at Peter Rex. And we'd love to have people helping out with our mission. The mission I'm on is the mission of the company, which is to empower people to rise up and live abundantly. And we'll get into some of that or that'll be threaded through. And that kind of just comes through the way I speak. That mission is a mission I came up with in collaboration with a lot of my partners. But I think it really comes out of my heart to empower people to rise up and live abundantly. So let's just jump into things and start jamming, Stuart. Can you talk more about how your trip to these 85 countries kind of developed into, into what trust work is? Yeah, absolutely. So trust work really comes out of my history and my experience. If you reverse backwards, I to the, since my earliest time when I started having flickers of consciousness, which was around maybe 18 years old, um, no, I'm kidding. But around sometime in high school, I started getting, you know, thoughts about what am I doing with my life? What am I trying to what's my ultimate impact? I was thinking about end of life things like, you know, life is short. How am I going to spend this small time I have here? Some context on that is why was I thinking that way as a 15, 16 year old? Well, I used to I used to actually help out a nun locally who I went and approached to help her out with her charity. She used to go and she had something like 500 shut-ins or people that didn't have um, anybody that visited them that she'd keep up with, which is an incredible amount. But I uh, ended up taking on about four of those, <laughs> so about under 1% of what she was doing. But nevertheless, it was a great experience. And during that, I realized life is very short. And that, you know, they, they also tell you this as you talk with these people. you know. And I've got to make the most of what I've got to give to others. And the other thing I... I came to realize both through, say, faith, but also through experience, is that paradoxically, meaning it seems to be a contradiction, it's in giving that you receive, it's in serving others that you find happiness. So it's kind of in getting out of yourself, you find happiness. So that kind of theme is something that has been throughout my life. As I went into college, I didn't think about business. I actually studied philosophy, liberal arts, completely just read everything except business, like zero in business, nothing. When I graduated, I ended up through really a number of happenstance things, backed my way into deciding to go into business. Part of it was the way I'm built, really is almost the, the reason why, and the timing of where we are in today's world. Maybe if it was 300 years ago, I'd probably be a military general or something like that. But 
in business today is one of the fastest moving things and the areas that you can have the biggest change impact. So given my, I, I also have this other part of me that's sort of this non-conforming part of me where I never have really conformed well with authorities. I mean, this goes back to, it's very much a nature thing for me. I'm sure I've nurtured it as well, but you know, if you go back to even when I was like, I was around four years old, I was kicked out of nursery school for um, Montessori school actually, which is set up for people who need to explore. Right. And I was actually kicked out of that. Then I had problems in, in elementary school throughout the whole thing. I kept getting put into special ed and my, my parents would have to get involved and try to get me back into normal track. And then they would not notice because they had five kids. So I'd be in, you know, special ed for like three years straight. <laughs> and then, so it was pretty funny. And my, and, and uh, so anyways, then going forward through college, I, I never had thought about business at all. Didn't really care about it. But the problem was I also wasn't really in a position where I could work in a company well because of my temperament. I'm not really good at following the rule system that's already set up. Even in college, I sort of skipped as many classes or almost... <laughs> I skipped as many classes as I possibly could without getting kicked out and did a lot of reading on my own. I read a lot of books on the side. I, I didn't think I was going to go to law school or anything else like this, you know, so I didn't, I would just write the paper based on what I thought the truth was, which would be sometimes disagreeing with the professor and never really playing the game. Yeah. Then I ended up um, realizing I, I was going to go into business through a number of things. I kind of had an epiphany moment. I was, went to a monastery, a Christian monastery and had this deep, um, deep prayer I went through for about two weeks. And I actually spent full nights in prayer as well. And I, I had this moment where I realized I was called to go into business. It seemed kind of like contradictory. Why would I do this? But anyways, long story short, decided to go into business. And and that and but through business, I just used it as a vehicle to do good, to try to uh, improve the world. But then I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. How do I build a company? How do I do business? My parents are teachers. I'm from uh, uh, I'm from upstate, upstate New York, working class background. Didn't know. I just didn't know anything about business. Didn't have any networks, didn't have any connections. So I ended up using, I kind of passed it all together via interlibrary loan system of New York, mm -hmm. mailing books into a central library, picking it up, keeping the cost down by staying on people's couches or crashing on the floor and kind of doing favors for buddies of mine. And I ended up realized, I ended up coming up with a strategy of how to build a company, how to get it off the ground, stuff like this, right? But a lot of what trusts work and then Fast forwarding, very skipping over tons of my failures, which are you know massive failures, including going through the great, the great crash, the great recession that that crashed down in 2007, which I took head first. And but despite all those failures, ended up building a company over a billion dollars. And but from that experience, I I abstracted out a lot of what is needed for other entrepreneurs, and I realized they don't have a lot of these things. And it is about three, it is about four to five years ago where I, I really abstracted out a lot of these part, pieces of the game. But this was built out of my American experience. And I really wanted to do something that was going to touch the world. And in America, we, we have 300 and however many million people, right? But the world's got over 7 billion now. And I wanted to reach out and be able to touch as many people as I could. And, and I knew that I could not get to them uh, via um, my experience in the U.S., which is very American-centric experienced. So I took this roadmap or this plan, this product product roadmap for anybody's in software, right? That's kind of what it was. And I and it was a vision, a very abstract vision of how this could be rewritten in software and how we could create a product and technology to do this. And I took that vision and I tested it, the ideas in 85 countries. I actually traveled with my wife and my kid. I had a kid at the time. So this is kind of a stressful thing. You know, I was, uh, <laughs> you guys talk about stress, right? I was like, you know, I got to do this if I'm going to build this. And I'm like, but I have this obstacle. I've got a kid and I have a wife now, you know, this is going to be a little more difficult than I when I was a crazy barbarian bachelor. And, uh, <laughs> which I'm sure some of the listeners will know what that's like. <laughs> and <laughs> it's a lot easier to just go roaming throughout the world. But anyway, so I ended up coming up, mapping out a plan of how we would, how I would execute on this. And, and, and I had this other company I had built out as a CEO. So I had to hand off the reins to another CEO with this company had over 250 people at the time, 250 employees. So I had to make sure that was held down well. So I ended up launching out and that's kind of how trust work was fully created on the ideas on the ideation of it, how the scheme was put together. The schematics of it was through this trip and these intensive meetings. I had over a thousand meetings. I had, I have 1600 pages of notes from all these countries of mm. uh, my meetings, my takeaways with business people, private equity folks, mm. 
investment bankers, uh, people on the ground running companies, mm. even tour guides I took, I would meet with locals and really question them a ton of questions. Go to every, I went to every cultural center of all these countries as well, tried to learn as much as I could about the religions, the philosophies, mm. the history, because I really wanted to understand from the local up, from the ground up, what the problem set is, and what the challenges mm. are. That way I could provide a solution as best as I could mm. through trust work that can empower them to rise up and live abundantly. So that's... So, either at an abstract level or a very concrete experience of one of these countries or one of these meetings, do you have a story or kind of what kind of what things people are dealing with on the ground? Yeah, I mean, there's in a way, it's almost too many different stories um, to sort of pull out just one of them from the hat. But I could do that as well. But let me try to uh, convey to the audience more of a generic, some general threads I've noticed. Mm -hmm is that everywhere in the world, there's massive opportunities, you know, everywhere, really. There's a lot of depressed thinking nowadays of like, you know, the world is, um, opportunities getting centralized, it's not distributed as much. We need to go with uh, universal basic income. We almost have to throw in the towel. We can't allow opportunities for people to move up on their own. I don't believe in any of that. I think, I really believe in people even more after my travels. What I do think we, so I'll get into the challenges facing them, but there's massive opportunities everywhere. Each place has its own unique comparative advantage based on its global positioning. So if you're positioned in, you know, I'll give you an extreme example. And this was an example. I I didn't even go to this spot for business reasons. I went for curiosity purely. I went to Easter Island. Mm. So I was in Chile having meetings and I told my wife, let's, I want to go to Easter Island because the history there is actually somewhat of a mystery, right? You've got these huge statues that don't, man, we, we kind of know how it got there now. Uh, um, aliens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, uh, the, uh, but when I got, so I went to, when I went to Easter Island, I really wanted to understand the culture, see how did this happen that these had these massive statues that were built out and chiseled out, right? I mean, this little island had really innovative technology for its time really breakthrough technology, right? It's, it's amazing. So I, I went there and when I got there, actually what I found was my tour guide there was an entrepreneur. Mm. And he had run this business. He's from Sweden. He married a girl that's from Easter Island. Oh. So naturally I'm always spinning on business ideas and figuring out ways to make things happen, right? So I'm talking to him. He's telling me his his position. I said, well, you know, tell me a little about about your wife. How'd you meet her? He's telling me. I said, is there any special rules around owning land here? How does she own land? Like, how does this work? There's like a luxury area, right? Or just a world-class like um, gem. And he said, yeah, you can only own land if you're a local. So he can because he's married to one. I said, well, that must be quite an advantage in business if you own that. And he said, well, I never considered that. And I said, yeah, what if you... The other thing is that in, in, in Easter Island there is, it produces extremely, uh, it produces guava very well. And this is kind of like very bizarre, right? But I'm just giving this for, as an example, right? Mm-hmm. It produces guava very well for some reason. The climate is perfect. It just grows like weeds. So he was telling me how you can make guava wine. And I tried some, it's pretty good. But the main thing is if you had something like guava wine from Easter Island, there is, even if a very small percentage of the world would like that, it's still a big business out of a small little place like Easter Island, right? So I told him, what if you bought up swaths of land using the privileges you have? Uh, you and your wife could do this because she has pr- special privileges. And then with that land, you'd be able to then cultivate this crop. And you also own a very scarce piece of land in a, in a luxury area. And you can also set up a resort on it and sell this wine. In addition, exporting it. But then for people who visit, you can have a nice resort because there's not really that. There's some resorts there, but you could you could set someone up almost like a vineyard style like Napa has, right? Mm. Anyways, he was like totally into this idea, you know, big time. And he's a switched on guy, very smart guy. Yeah. And anyway, so he, he, he said, you know, he was going over, he, he wanted me to invest with him. And I was actually, for some crazy reason, thinking about maybe, you know, let me consider this, which I then recovered from because I realized, wait, I've got building trust work. I get this thing is already <laughs> taking so much cash as it is. I can't be given a million dollars over here. I've got all this other stuff going on and it's too far outside. But that type of guy, if he got capital, has a clear strategy and he's a winner. And he knows what's up and he understands business. He's run his own company. So he owns PNL. He knows how to run a PNL. Mm. The point there though, is in the most niche outside of the air um, box place, you wouldn't think there's any opportunities, right? There's even an opportunity there. Mm. There's opportunities everywhere. And mm. that place has a lot of things restricting it, right? It's far away. It's not next to a lot of areas of commerce, not a big population, but there's, there's always an angle somewhere. Mm. 
And I think the entrepreneur on the ground knows where that angle is much better than I would ever figure it out. But if you can combine that entrepreneur, that person, which I call entrepreneur, anybody who's out there now needs to be an entrepreneur. If that person has access to networks, and there's really a few things I think are common that, that are needed. It's they need networks. They need capital, access to capital. They need an ability to advertise their brand. And a lot of these things are all interconnected. They need to advertise who they are to the world so the world can see who they are clearly so their reputation can be known. For anybody who's in Silicon Valley, which is a place I, I called home for a while, I just moved up to Seattle, but they'll know that in Silicon Valley, everyone knows basically everybody. So that helps a lot because things can happen very quickly. You can back channel anybody. But if you're not in a small little area like that, how do you know who's who? If you don't know who's who, you can't allocate capital. You can't make moves. You can't hire as quickly. This is a huge friction point. So Conquering that reputation piece is a, is a third thing. And the fourth one is they don't have access to good technologies built to leverage their output. So this is something, this, and that's exactly the four things that we're working on at Trustwork is those four things. Mm -hmm. These technology tools are what we're building, but we're building them in a way to empower, empower the, the people there, the people here in the, the United States as well, but really everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting, particularly the part about, from what I see, the playing field is changing dramatically so that, you know, a hundred years ago, if you were going to be successful, you would kind of pick this one path where you would go, you know, go into military, uh, go into business, go into bureaucracy and kind of rise up slowly and slowly. That path is now seemingly destroyed for, unless for a small amount of people. And it seems like the only way to actually, uh, create something or to, to, to make money or to become successful is through this entrepreneurial path. Um, and the l internet is kind of changing it. So you said that this reputation piece, uh, I, I found that in doing this podcast, like 10 years ago, it would have been very difficult for me to do this podcast, but now I can basically reach out to anybody. I can find them on Twitter. Most of my guests have come from Twitter. Um, and so, and it's not based on my reputation. I just sent him a message, you know, and I do have a big network here in Silicon Valley, but I haven't actually tapped into it yet. I've just been kind of like finding these interesting people through the internet. Um, can you talk more about what you guys are doing in terms of, uh, of, of using technology to empower creators or empower uh, people? It's, it's construction, right? P your people helping people do construction? Yes, I mean, ultimately we wanna empower everybody so we, the platform is built as a platform for, we call it the platform of entrepreneurship, but, and, and ultimately we, we, the vision of it is to be the new land of opportunity. Mm. So people out there might know, maybe they don't know what the land of opportunity was. Historically, the land of opportunity was the United States. Mm. It still is a land of opportunity, but I think we need to recreate the land of opportunity, but we need to do it with new technologies. And that's what trust work is. It's the new land of opportunity where anybody, anywhere can move up based on their merit, leveraging the, leveraging the tools that are now available, which is the internet and networks and things like that. They can do it right where they are. And by doing so, they can gain more mobility as well. Because once you gain capital, access to capital, things like that, now you start getting networks, you start building your reputation, all of a sudden mobility follows. Mobility enables you to get up and move from where you are to another spot. Mm. So anyways, this is a, that's the, in the long term where we're going. But so our entry point strategy though, is Uberizing real estate services which includes construction. So my background early, early before college even was I worked, I used to work in construction. Um, not as a guy who was calling the shots though, as like a, a total grunt laborer. So, which was, uh, it's great. It's totally dignifying work. Um, and I think that all those people that are in that position that I was in are looking forward to artificial intelligence, removing those jobs and allowing them to do higher level jobs because mm. <laughs> those jobs are horrible. Some mm. of those really on the ground level jobs I did were, were tough jobs. Mm. Um, but I was, you know, I was like seriously the entry point laborer. I was moving around cement blocks and stuff like that. But nevertheless, I kind of had a window into understanding construction. So that's why when I started, I started in real estate it was one of the reasons. Now, you might say, well, I didn't understand real estate. I understand construction well enough. Well, I did a little bit, and I also understood construction people well because I worked with them. So I knew kind of how they were, and I knew kind of how to motivate them as well and what, what made them tick. I knew their strengths and weaknesses sort of, you know? And so, but anyway, so that's our entry point strategy. And what our first, we, we rolled out two products on Trustworks platform, but Trustwork right now you can get, if you're in Austin, Texas, which maybe some listeners are in Austin, Texas, I challenge the listener to jump on Trustwork 
create a quick profile. It should take you a second, but then post something. Now, the more you create a profile and the better you show yourself who you are, if you show your picture and things like that, the better chance you have of someone responding because they don't think you're, you know, someone that's, you know, shady or whatever. Right. But even if you are want to be Mr. Shady and just kind of do the minimum, you could still post something. And I bet you in Austin, you'll get a response for almost anything you want done, mm. even right now. Mm. Because so I, I tested this last year, even before the product was only like four months rolled out in Austin. And I still got anything. I got three things I wanted done. Mm. I, I got to Austin for South by Southwest. And I had a, a, I, I rented a pretty big house there. And I was holding mm. some get together, some parties. Um, but I didn't actually want to do the setup work because I was out late at night drinking and just having a good time with some of the guys from my company. Um, anyway, so what I did was I posted literally at like 1130 at night. We were out watching live music. If anybody's been to Austin, knows what I'm talking about. It's a great town. So I posted on there to I need someone to come by. I'll pay him like 50 bucks an hour to come by and help me set up in the morning. <laughs> so I got hit up within five minutes from a film producer who wanted a little extra money and he was trying to make it happen. Right. Uh -huh. He just wanted to get. 150 bucks or whatever quickly it covers some of his costs while he's still you know doing his hustle right mm -hmm. so anyways he came by super nice guy got the job done everything was smooth and he like and he said what's up to everybody there too and he said hey i found you guys all on trust work right this is a, this is like last year uh, so right now if you post something you can get something on it. And i also posted for two different babysitters i needed at two different times uh, and i got them and they sent me a screenshot of their care.com profile for anybody that's married knows that this is the big, like one of the biggest constraints of travel is getting a babysitter, right? Cause you can't, you're not going to trust somebody, you know, right off the bat, you got to make sure they're good if they're with your kid. Mm -hmm. So we ended up getting, you know, two very qualified people there. And this was for areas that the platform is, that's not really our entry point strategy. It still works though. Mm -hmm. So really trust work is the, every, it's kind of the everything platform and you can just get anything you need to get done on it eventually. Cool. But right now we're waiting for liquidity. We need more people to get on. And the more people that come on that are doing stuff, the better it's going to get. But right now, our two main business lines that we've, I've launched two businesses that I, I seeded two companies. I invested with two different entrepreneurs that are leading them. And actually, both of them are people I know well because they were cultivated through the ranks of my other company. And they're just outstanding superstar type people. And they're leading it. One is called Turns, which is a construction services company. It's about apartment turnovers. Mm. And the other one is called Odd Job, which is about any job you need to get done. Mm. So it's kind of like Odd Job is sort of like... Um, it would be like thumbtack on steroids. Mm. Mm. And turns is completely, there's nothing else like turns out there. So mm. it's, it's a completely new concept. Mm. But it does the turnover process from soup to nuts of an apartment, which can cover anybody's Airbnb they need to get done, anybody's apartments. It's the, it is the pain point of anybody that owns large apartment complexes or owns a home that they're trying to rent out or get an Airbnb on. So it's the first an initial pain point buy an apartment and then want to get guests in it immediately and then turns basically takes that whole thing and, and makes it really quick yeah exactly yeah they run it very high throughput and and they brought the turn times down from like sometimes at 30 days down to seven another time they brought it from seven down to five mm. depends on how quick that apartment complex is on responding and the ownership is but they're they could get it down to about two to three days that's how fast they are on getting it, it done so this adds massive amount of money if you think I know in San Francisco when I lived there, which was just you know six months ago, I was living over in Dolores Park area, right? And you know in San Francisco everything is just like complete, like out of this world costly. Cool. So we are, I was paying on average about two hundred to three hundred a day was how much the cost came out to be. Oh. But I also have a big family and stuff and wife and everything else, and I had to host things for the company. I would host get-togethers or barbecues, and that cost. So if you think about that, if you can save someone you know, 10 days at 200 bucks a day, then that's $2,000 in their pocket they otherwise wouldn't get. Mm. But if you can do that over 10,000 apartments, you're just talking massive amount of money then, mm -hmm. you know? So this is the, this is the value proposition of turns, but that's just two different business on trust work then. Yeah. But let me, let me, let me jump back into other stuff that's more relevant to the audience. Yeah. So what, uh, so we've been talking about this whole entrepreneurship and that people are need to become entrepreneurs and if they're going to succeed and both at a lower level of just like i'm building this construction firm and i've got these service service contracts that i'm just doing and then also at a higher level where you're kind of building this technology that allows all these other people to do these things so what are some sources of stress that entrepreneurs deal with uh that people who have never experienced entrepreneurship have no idea what they're what what they're talking about yeah absolutely 
I think I think the whole concept of stress is is an interesting one. <laughs> First, let me just say as a disclaimer that when I was young, um, my brothers and sisters used to make fun of me because they they would they would say if anybody ever said I was stressed out, I would always get angry and be like, I'm not stressed out, you know. Uh -huh. So. <laughs> And I never liked the con I never liked the term stress the way people use it. Like I'm stressed out. It always seemed kind of like a complaint, mm -hmm. and so I never liked it because I always I have a rule which is no complaining, no whining. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> for myself, so uh -huh. um, because this type of stuff is like a me, oh, poor me type attitude, and never leads to anything good. You just start feeling bad for yourself. It leads it to kind of like a down mentality. And I always like to be on the up, mm -hmm. positive towards mm -hmm. others as well, and kind of get out of myself. So, but jumping into stress though. So the way I look at stress is it's kind of a neutral thing. It could be bad or good. That's the reality of it, right? I think some some people might say, most people would say it's bad. Some people might say it's good. I don't know. But I would just say that it's neutral and it's an indicator of, and it means something and it should be, you should question it. Why do I have that stress? And if it's a good thing, that's a good stress and maybe you want more of it. If it's a bad thing, then you, you shouldn't want that stress you shouldn't want what's causing that stress, but it's an indicator of something happened. So I, I would call drama. You ever say, like, I got drama with this person, right, in the company, or I'm dealing with somebody who's causing me drama? That's stress too, but it's just negative stress, man. There's nothing good coming out of that. That's got to cut that out, right? Mm -hmm. Other people are just like negative people, right? They cause stress in a way, right? Because they're always like saying negative stuff, but that's a bad stress. Good stress is like, you know, we got deadlines. We got to hit this. The deadlines we're doing is we're creating stuff that's going to empower people. Like, that's a good stress. Like, mm -hmm. I want more of that stress. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But stress it should be an indicator to stop and pause and say, hey, what's going on here? Am I doing things right? Am I on the right path? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I, I see stress. And I think, but I would say reversing back on stress to a more fundamental level is I think, this is what I do anyway. So I'll talk from the first person here. And maybe this will be helpful to some of the audience. I have nine priorities that comes before my work which might be crazy to those who worked with me. And some people in San Francisco might have worked with me that are listening or might've been a consultant with my company. And they'll know that I had a reputation of being a complete crazy man at work, like just working like crazy. Mm -hmm. This is not new to San Francisco. I had the same exact reputation every place I ever went. Um, even in New York, I told some of the guys I used to work with, I, I rented an office. I, I actually didn't rent. They let me stay for free, but I'd give them like a piece of anything I got because I needed this, I needed a place to work out of. Uh, and the guys that used to work down buddies with them now. And I told them I got burnt out. I had to go to hospital. And they started laughing. They're like, well, dude, I could have told you that was going to happen. And I said, no, nah, I'm kidding, bro. I'm still, I'm totally fine. <laughs> and they're like, oh man, well, if you were, I would tell you, man, I saw that coming. Because uh -huh. <laughs> I used to come at like 6 a.m. and close down at like midnight every day. Uh -huh. <laughs> Just work like a crazy dog, you know? But I think before that, though, what people don't realize is I have nine priorities. And my nine priorities are basically, I, I separate them in, into three sets of three. This is for the audience so they can listen in. This might be helpful for them because I've given a lot of thought to this. Is that the, the priorities to work to me are God, wife, kids for me, you know, so for others, God, wife, spouse, or intelligent being, whoever they're, you know, spiritual. God, wife, kids. The next set of three is family, friends. It's F, but F stands for family, friends because I consider them the same. Intellectual, like my intellectual life, health which includes my fitness, but also, you know, what I'm eating. Mm. So FIH, which is family, friends and intellectual health. And then the last is VMP, mm. which is my vision, my money and my play. Mm. And the reason why is a vision means my attitude, really. Like, how's my mentality? Am I being positive? How do I see people? Am I giving to them? Myself? Am I being selfish or am I being self-giving? Mm. Is it me? Is it me, me, me? Or is it, is it you, 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 you know, like wh what am I doing here? So that's kind of my vision. And then my, my money is about financial. Am I financially healthy with my family? Am I, you know, making sure that they're taking care of stuff like that? Do I make sure we have the basics, et cetera, which we have more than the basics at this point. So I don't really have anything to worry about, but what I do have to worry about in the money is that we're not over consuming and we're not becoming materialistic. Mm. So that's, that's the money side. And then the last is play which you'd be like, well, play comes before work. Mm. I'd be like, man, life is short, bro. Of course yeah. it does. Yeah. <laughs> and it so, does seem to me that you really kind of enjoy what you're doing. So how do you tell that difference between play and work? Yeah, so I think those nine, th nine things to me are just the kind of a hard priority for me. Mm. And then work has all those integrated in in a harmonious fashion. I call it harmony instead of uh, work-life balance. 
And I never liked the term work-life balance from the beginning. I don't know why, but it was always something like, it's kind of like this yin-yang, like work in life. And to me, it's like, I'm not going to do any work on don't generally think is positive and good anyways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and it creates a false dichotomy, which ends up making you almost demonize work and maybe think work's not life. Mm-hmm. And most people, and studies show this, most people spend about 60 to 80% of their life working mm-hmm. anywhere, period. This 60% is on the very low end of like someone who barely works. <laughs> so, but still they work almost most of their time. So if you ain't living while you're working, like you're already dead anyways. Mm-hmm. So you might as well start living fully. Just have full life, life instead of work, life balance, have a life, life balance. Mm. But that being said, like, l- let me not try to like, um, sugarcoat how much I work though. I work, I put in about 14 hours a day. So that's, and I've been, and that's less than I used to. Mm. I take off one day a week though. Mm. And that's family day, God day, whatever you want to call it. And that's Sunday. I take that off a hard stop. And someone could call me if it's an emergency, but that's never happened, actually. I started doing that about seven years ago. But my first six years, seven years in business, I did not take a day off, even for Christmas. I worked on Christmas as well. And that I'm not saying that that was good, though. I should have took a day off. And I mean, that, week. <laughs> so, that's how you learned what you're doing right now, essentially, is through working too hard and then realizing that you have to put some boundaries on, on what your work is, right? I think, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately work can become a form of slavery. And because, well, first of all, you never get enslaved on your own to something that's bad. Usually it's usually something that's like kind of like really good. Right. People have enslavement to like different addictions. Right. But those addictions have like good feelings associated with them. That's kind of what captures them. Mm -hmm. Work is such a good thing. Mm -hmm. But if we're not careful at work and we don't set hard boundaries on it, then and we don't give ourselves a day of rest where it almost forces us to like completely just stop, focus on the things that are those nine priorities really that I mentioned mm-hmm. and those things that are of eternal significance. I mean, I think work is of eternal significance as well, but this kind of helps us to break the possible chains of slavery to work mm-hmm. because it's a good thing, but like a good thing can become a bad thing if it's just abused. Mm-hmm. It could take control of us and we become like the workaholic, right? I mean, I think these guys get like, you know, some of the successful businessmen and I'm, I'm trying to stay vigilant that this doesn't happen to me as well. And it's not gonna because I'm staying on it. But is that, you know, they'll their marriage all of a sudden will just boom, blow up. Totally shocked everybody. Like all of a sudden it's over. And it's like, how did that happen? You know, like wasn't their wife like basically the most important thing? Maybe she was, but maybe over time, like they kind of lose focus a little bit. Maybe they started like the kids, they looked at the kids and their relationship was with the kids and no longer with their wife or their spouse, you know, and then things kind of blew up and maybe their work became like they became too absorbed in it in a way that it became a negative. And I don't think these things, I think these things are all virtuous. Like if you get them in the right spot, they feed on each other in a very positive cycle where you become more powerful in your work and you become more unstoppable Yeah. and you're, and you're positive, man. You get the better, you get better people too. Mm -hmm. And that's, I don't think a lot of people kind of blame work for their own, uh, for their own marital issues and stuff like that. But I don't actually think that that's the case, that it's, they're blaming the work for it or that the work is the, the problem. It's their their inability to look at the other thing because the other thing is emotionally challenging. So like they have problems with their wife and they're like, oh, shit, I don't know how to deal with that. I'm going to focus on this work because I know how to deal with that. Um, and I know and I've talked with people on the show have mentioned that as the actual problem is that when looking back and reflecting on the problems that they had, they're like, oh, it wasn't the work. The work just was just an excuse for me not to look at this thing, basically. Yeah. 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 It was like an escape mechanism, baby, maybe for them. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't think, I, I mean, I would encourage people who are out there, especially those who are trying to move up and that that would be most people, right. Or just want to be more happy is to nail those priorities and then crush work, mm-hmm. you know, just, and they, and you'll find that these things are synergistic. Mm-hmm. I think these things should feed into each other and feed off each other. That's kind of the key, really. You want to have the virtuous cycle of life going inside you and, and then you want to have it on your team you know, as well, people you work with, right? Because then it just becomes more like positive and people are pumped and they're ready to, you know, ready to just crush obstacles together. So there's, there's something you mentioned a while back about reading stuff on your own. Um, and as opposed to reading what you're told to, to do, I have a similar thing where I was in fourth grade and somebody would tell me to read this book and I'd be like, okay, you know, can you talk more about how, reading for your own benefit or kind of learning on your own um, is has been more important for you than reading what somebody else is writing about or telling you to write read yeah um 
I mean, so I went to college, as I'd mentioned, and I basically, <laughs> I thought I was going to go into the missions also. So this is another reason why I just kind of probably even more so than a normal kid blew off things. I did go to class though. And I did, I was, I got good grades, relatively speaking. I, maybe I would obviously would have got better ones if I maybe did everything correctly to what they wanted. But ultimately the way I looked at college was it's basically a credential. I just checked the box on and it's a network, but the education is kind of a joke. And it's almost like a lot of people get de-educated in college and they get brainwashed, you know, like you can't even question like anything. And like, everyone's overly sensitive about everything. It's like, is this seriously an intellectual environment? I mean, our company has an intellectual environment. We, we call it, we also call it, we call it forthrightness. Mm. You have to, you have to tell it like it is and tell it point blank. Mm. Because if you don't, like we don't have free debate. We don't have, and people get offended. Sometimes I had, I've had people come up to me even recently where they say such and such. So, so-and-so offended me. He said the following. And I said, what'd you say back? And, he, and person said, well, you know, yeah. I didn't, I didn't say anything. I, you know, I'm like, so she's, she, he said, I'm going to, I just came to you and I wanted to tell you. And I said, well, you know, that's not really like high level of integrity. Go ahead and confront that person individually in a positive way, constructively and say, Hey, what's the deal? Mm-hmm. You know, you said the following, I found that offensive. And then you start to kind of build common ground with people. But otherwise we end up in a situation where nobody understands each other anymore. Everyone's pointing fingers. You can't say anything even political about anything. Otherwise, people will accuse you of like, oh, you're an Obama supporter or something or you're a Trump guy or you're, you know, you like Hillary Clinton or whatever it is. Like, it's just like, all right, man, like what what is this like? Why is everyone pointing fingers like no one? No one and I think it's product of like college is such a brainwashing situation where everyone only has one side and they keep trying to press it down on you. Mm. And the books sometimes just they're just garbage. You know, I mean, they're better off like burned and like using marshmallows to like roast your marshmallows. That's how mm-hmm. stupid the books are. Right. Mm-hmm. And not all the books, but just generally here. And but so what I did was I would read what they wanted me to read only to just like take their test or whatever. But I would get a lot of other books I would be slamming through that I thought were like intellectually like rigorous books that had been proven over time to be relevant. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting thing we can go down is essentially, uh, I don't know if you've read anything by Nicholas Taleb, uh, he, who wrote Anti-Fragile. Uh, he talks about what's called the Lindy effect, where, where books that have tested the time, we know that there's value in them because they've managed to last so long. Uh, and what we're seeing today in society is kind of almost a uh, total denial of the value of tradition. Um, and I'm not a traditionalist by any means. I find that there is there there is value in coming up with new stuff. But there are these things that have tested the stand um, standed the test of time. What do you think about this? This kind of like this new kind of new things coming up that provide value versus these things that have been tested for a really long time. No, absolutely. I mean, it's um, I mean, you've got to have both. That's the, that's the thing, right? People want just like one because it's easier, right? It's a simpler thing to digest in your brain that just, oh, the new way has to be better than the old way. No, that's not the case, actually. Like the new way sometimes is better than the old way, but sometimes it's worse. It, it's not necessarily better or worse. It should be judged at, on its output. Like what does it affect society? Like how does it affect other people? Mm-hmm. Same thing with, um, you know, really anything is is kind of like neutral in that sense. I mean, technologies are neutral too. Like you know, I could I could use a new technology to blow up the world, right? That's what some people wanted to do and still can. And I could also use it to create uh, energy and and which then gives life or provides heat for people. And so it, it depends on how you want to like what was this thing to be used for and what's the effect of it. But I think that tradition and things that have happened over time do need to be respected, but they don't they don't need to be held in in sacred esteem. They should be respected though and considered. You know what's interesting about Taleb is that. Um, my, uh, I had two different, one was my brother read Talib. I never had read him actually. And I didn't even know about him really. I've heard about it. I just never read his stuff. And, and then my business partner read him as well. And they both independently said they understood my thinking better after reading some of his books. Uh-huh. And, um, so I think he's, you know, but it's kind of, it, I also like to be careful of confirmation bias where I think a certain way and I read someone who agrees with me and then I say, oh yeah, I, I have to, you know, this, this is a good point, you know? This guy thinks this and that's something I already thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I actually prefer to read people that disagree with me mm-hmm. because then I could get, I could kind of see, you know, test my ideas and see if they're true. Mm-hmm. And that's a, it's a healthier way. Also, definitely in business is a better way to be operating mm-hmm. is, is kind of 
hold a really strong position and be like, you know, come with a good conviction, but come to test it and see if it's true. Because what's more important is I like John Wooden a lot, by the way. John Wooden is a coach, very thoughtful guy. He used to teach Shakespeare in college, actually. So that's probably I think it's one of the reasons I strike Shakespeare is some of the best stuff to read. Oh. But uh, John Wooden, very thoughtful guy about leadership, stuff like that. But he has a good line. Maybe I've translated into the way I think about things. But it's something along the lines of it's more important that you get it right than that you are right. Mm -hmm. Something along these lines. And I say that in the company a lot. Like, listen, it doesn't matter. Me as CEO, like, it's more important that we figure out how I'm wrong about something right now. Let's figure it out. Than that I go around being Mr. Right guy. Mm -hmm. And then we all go down the wrong path. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that's, that. can you talk more about that essentially having to be because the fundamental nature of our humanity or an individual human being is to see the world based on our own experiences. But the world, the present moment, life is constantly shifting, constantly changing. So the conditions that we're dealing with are always in flux. And so in order to stay on it in business, we have to constantly be questioning our own knowledge and our own experiences. Um, what do you think about that? Do you agree? Do you disagree? And what you're saying, Stuart, is that we've got to always be in a position of critiquing our current position and where we stand on stuff. Well, and just our so the way that the way that I'm seeing you right now, the way that I'm I'm talking to you is based on my experiences before. You know, I'm I'm I grew up in San Francisco. I've I've been in technology. I've I've all these different things are coloring what I'm saying right now, basically. And so, but in in from my experiences, and then from also from from uh, what you're saying is that in 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 business we have to question those those confirmations basically. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that you've got to you've got to somewhat um, you got to kind of stand outside yourself, mm. and I think that's a mark of a good leader, mm. and that's what people need you to do that are counting on you. Mm. And I think, but now I think really, and this kind of goes into an earlier question you had, which I want to close out a little bit of an answer on, is that you said. What kind of stress does an entrepreneur face? And I think that everybody that's listening here needs to turn themselves into an entrepreneur. And here's the reason why is because I don't care if you go and start a business on your own and build one. That doesn't matter anymore. Like the world is shifting really quickly. We're now entering into we're in the knowledge economy and, and some people are not fully in there yet. And some people are. But it's all it's eating up everything. The knowledge economy It's just moving everywhere. Right. So now knowledge is going to move quickly and it's going to change as we learn. Right. So you've got to become an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur, you've got to be flexible. You've got to be seeking the truth. You've got to build up your own equity and your, and your own brand. Your personal brand needs to get built up because if you don't own that, you're going to be owned, <laughs> you know, and you're not going to, you're just going to not shift quick enough and things are moving. So I think the stress of an entrepreneur, which is the stress that every listener here needs to take on, which is a positive stress is a good stress is they need to be stressed out in a positive way. So what I'd say is that maybe it's a better word than stressed out for this, but let's go with stress just because it's, it's a topic, right? They need to be stressed out about how can they improve? How can they learn more? How can they give of themselves more to others? How can they serve customers better? Their customers inside the company that they're supposed to serve. How can they move up in the company that they're in? How can they figure out how to move the company they're in further along? I mean, you know, the quickest way to probably make a million dollars today is to be in a company that's going to be growing and get some shares. That is the easiest way to make a million dollars. I mean, you know that from San Francisco, right? Because you get like a like a tiny little sliver of like an Uber and boom, it's worth like $100 million or something, you know? So, yeah. and in my previous company that I built, right, we have a number of people that have made in the millions. And that was only over maybe seven or eight years that they did this. So, I mean, there's it's just that the best way to, because then you're at this team and you have this team effect mm. and you're pushing and you're growing. But in order for someone to get shares in the company, the way I always thought about it was they need to be acting like an entrepreneur. They have to risk their time. They got to put themselves out there. They can't be like a laborer, you know, someone that's just showing up for work, nine to five guy. They got to be 24 seven kind of like thinking about stuff, even in their passive mind works on things mm -hmm. and is figuring out like if you're not dreaming, here's the challenge I said every listener. If you're not dreaming about what you're going to do next, I'm not saying every single night, right? Sometimes you're just clonked. <laughs> so, but like, if you're not generally dreaming about stuff, then you're not pushing yourself hard enough. You should be dreaming about what you could do more, how you could do something more creative and like what you could do better and ideas you could do. Right. So when you get up to go to the bathroom, or whatever, you're like, boom, ideas are popping in your head and you're not trying to, though. You're actually just relaxed, mm -hmm. but your brain works for you then. 
you want because then if you have that stretch, your brain will just try to figure it out. It just keeps working. It's like a muscle, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's kind of a in a way, it's like a in a way, your brain is a dumb muscle. It needs direction. But if you give it a challenge, a stress, it will try to figure it out. It's going to try to work on it for you. That gets into what I've been thinking a lot, which is that stress, as you were saying, is a neutral thing. It's something that's always going on. Gravity, for example, is a source of stress. And that stress has developed, has influenced our evolution as human beings. So like when I get up to go get water, I'm all of a sudden moving from a less stressed environment to a more stressed environment. And all those, all these evolutionary principles are going on in my body to help me walk basically that are all responding to the stress that gravity is giving me. And the really important thing about that is that if we go to space, we actually lose that stress and our bones uh, start to degrade because um, there's these little electrical signals that get sent in the body every time you put pressure on a bone called a piezoelectric force that, that basically stresses the bone and all the connective tissue that makes it stronger and healthier. Um, so yeah, there is this kind of like, there's what's called a Goldilocks position of, of stress where we are have enough stress to make ourselves as effective and efficient as possible, but not too much stress that we start to engage parts of our nervous system, like the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight nervous system, uh, which basically, uh, um, if we constantly engage that, that, that leads to burnout and PTSD. Uh, so there's this kind of line that each person has to find for themselves, which is what is the um, most effective uh, stressors that I can find in my life. Um, and kind of choosing your stressors. For example, having a marriage, having a family is also a source of stress as well, just like you said. Um, that's really cool. Uh, so we only have five minutes or so left. I wanted to talk more about your faith and uh, kind of like how that has played a role in your creativity and your ability to, to, to develop what you've developed. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And um, I think... Uh, I'm not sure how you know that I'm a person of faith, but maybe you've intuited that from some things or maybe you saw some tweets maybe I put out here and there. But I am I am a person of faith. I do believe in God. I think that the belief in God is something that is intuitive. Um, I think it's you'd almost have to sort of actively intellectually deny the existence of an intelligent being um, to be an atheist. Mm -hmm. um, some people listening might be kind of offended by that, but you know, it's part of the thing. Like you've got to speak what you think is true. Right. And then this opens the debate. I, I mean, look for anybody who might be offended. I, I care about you. I don't want to offend you. I'm just, this is just a position, a point of view on an idea. Um, I think that the reason why I think that is because it's either two options. One is it's total chance or the other is we have some intelligent being that set things in motion. Right. So I think starting from that premise, I do believe in an intelligent being, but there's a second leap of faith I took, which is a belief in Jesus. And that's based on an abnormality in history where we had a very barbaric time. We still have a barbaric time, but much less so. And out of that came a very profoundly different message, which was to love one another, even love your enemy. This is a completely change of history. And I've been to all these countries, right? I checked out all the religions, all the cultures. Every single culture anywhere on earth, never was this ever said anywhere besides this one guy, Jesus. So this profound sort of leap out of history is a shock to me. And that, that caused me to say, okay, something is here. So on the one hand, either he's a great, Jesus is a great teacher or Jesus is something more. I took the leap that he is actually God. I'm not saying anybody else needs to take the leap, but I did, I did take that leap. And how has that impacted me? I would say it, it kind of gets me out of myself, but you can do this without even believing in Jesus. But I think with Jesus, it gives me a model of somebody who was completely self-sacrificing, right? Trying to help others also challenging authorities like crazy, right? The authority of his time would be equivalent to say, we have a lot of authorities of our time, right? You say something that you think is true and people will try to, you know, attack you, you know, and it's getting, you know, worse and worse, right? San Francisco too, you know that, right? Yeah. No matter what you say, it's like they get offended. They try to attack you personally. It's like, okay, you know, what's going on here? But he stood up against that during his time. And at that time they actually would kill you, right? Mm -hmm. Eventually this led to his death and stuff, but he stood up against the authorities he said, you know, don't, you know, a lot of them were very doing things just for their own selves. They didn't care about other people. They didn't love others. So this message is something I, that has had definitely a huge impact on me. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. Separately though, I would say for those who just believe in an intelligent being, I think that prayer, worship, the act of getting out of yourself, which I would say is very different than the Buddhist meditation, which is also a very good thing, by the way. But 
the prayer of moving and looking outwards, not inside, but really it's inside and outwards because God is both internally within and internally outside, right? But when you move outside of yourself, it kind of gets you in union with other people in a more profound way. And this is humbling. It kind of puts you in check. You know, maybe you're making millions of dollars. Maybe you're crushing it, making moves, this and that. But for that moment, like you're a created being along with everyone else. And, and then you start to have this empathy towards other people that makes you care about them more. And it makes you kind of feel their pain more. And you can kind of feel, and, and sometimes I say, like, I feel the cry of the poor. And you can feel this cry of those who are in need in other countries as well. And, and this kind of drives you to, it drives me to get out there and try to get after it even harder. So that maybe I have made a lot of money now with the companies I've been in and with the success. But every dollar added is an obligation to the poor, to people that need me, that need me to give back. And I don't know if I would think that way absent those other factors. So I think that's the effect of faith. Mm. And and I can't say, though, man, because I, I haven't been in the shoes of someone that doesn't have faith. So I don't know. Like, But I would say that certainly there is some causality there I could see that has led me to this kind of almost extremely um, different position about the nature of wealth, where if I have wealth, I, it's an obligation to others. It's not this thing that I can go and like, oh, now it's, I mean, you can use it for great things and good and have fun and this and that, right? And that's totally fine. But it's not something there for just like my pleasure only. It's actually has this obligation tied to other people now. And that's, that's what Jordan Peterson talks a lot about is that when you don't have faith anymore and we've lost this sense of tradition and, and values and stuff like that, what replaces it and it's, it's nihilism. And nihilism, while a very interesting philosophical experience, uh, doesn't lead to any action, particularly towards others, because it's kind of like there is no meaningless. There, everything is meaningless. So um, that's uh, yeah, really interesting. So to, to wrap up, what is one book that you've been reading recently that talks about the nature of creativity or has influenced you in some way? Book, article, idea, just something about something that's helped you kind of frame your own creativity or your ability to manage and deal with stress? Well, I'll just tell you the book I'm reading. I'm reading three different books right now. Um, so, but I'll just tell you uh, one of them that maybe can be applicable. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it's going to help, help you with your stress though, but uh, it's it's going to, it's probably going to, it, it's, it's a thought provoking book. I'm reading Rene Girard on the side uh, yep. mm -hmm. on things hidden since the foundation of the world. It's sort of a Q&A with him. Mm. I would say it's fairly interesting. Um, definitely a fresh thinker. I think two of the fresher thinkers of our times, he's probably, or a few, a few of the fresher thinkers of our times, he's up there. He has to be up there as one of the more fresh thinkers. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, there's very few fresh thinkers in philosophy. Most of the modern philosophists, and I was a philosophy background, haven't said anything new since Plato. I mean, it's just, it's all in Plato, Aristotle. Mm. It's just like gibberish, you know? And but I think there's a couple like Rene Girard, some of the stuff about mimicry and how we tend to imitate and how this could lead to sort of competition over goods. So if you I'll give you a quick example, and I'm probably debasing this because it's like I'm reading this on the side. I read these types of books on the side to keep my brain fresh and keep my new ideas. But, it, you know, it, I, stuff I've seen in the past, but say like you want this cup of coffee, you know, over here say that I'm drinking and uh, and I want it, too, because I go to reach for it and you and we have all have this thing inside of us as humans to mimic, to imitate, and we both imitate directly. Now, as adults, this is what Gerard points out, as adults, we don't do this because we have resistance to this because we know it brings violence. If we both go for the cup of coffee, we might get into a violent confrontation. Certainly, I, I think I would attack you if you try to take my coffee. So I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It could lead to a confrontation over a single good, right? Gerard says, as kids, you can see this behavior. They go for the same cup of coffee. They don't go for coffee, but they go for the same toy. They see you can even have all the same toys together and put five kids in there. Everything's this exact same toy, and they'll go for the same one because they mimic each other. And this leads to a fight. I see it with my kids. I have two kids in the morning. There actually, I have three kids, but two of my kids were battling over really essentially the same looking toy. There's two of them, mm -hmm. and they kept, my my son. He's two. He had his name is Joseph. He had he had both the toys. He didn't want to give it up, and they had both the same toy. And I was like, hey, just give it to John Paul. He's four. And they're both crying and fighting over it. It was like a total meltdown. It was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. But this is the mimicry type behavior people have. 
But I think being conscious of that is is important because we can see this mimicry, this sheep herd mentality going on. Mm. And I think you want to recognize it in yourself and see like when you're doing stuff only because you're supposed to do stuff, because that's what people are kind of more or less imposing on you that you have to do this now, mm. you know, and, and you can see this kind of irrational behavior happen where they all start to do it. And San Francisco used to see it a lot, man. It would be like, I'll give you an example in San Francisco. It's pretty funny. Like, so a year and a half ago, about a year and a half ago, I, ca I came out with shirts on trust work where we were making fun of Facebook. Mm. This is before Facebook was, was unpopular. And we were going thumbs down on Facebook. And then with a fist, our sign is the fist, like right after a big fist. <laughs> and that's all we did. I didn't even put anything else on it, right? <laughs> and people were getting pissed, man, in San Francisco because like people have friends at Facebook or they work at Facebook. And then someone took a picture and they were talking about it at Facebook and they're angry. Anyways, everybody was like, and people, some people in our company didn't want to even wear their shirt because they felt like, oh no, what are people going to say? I'm like, who cares, man? I'm like, it's a joke anyways. Like, why are they taking it so serious? Yeah. Anyways, and then fast forward like four months, Facebook fell into the news with Cambridge Analytics scandal. Then when that happened, everybody hated Facebook and then guys were wearing the shirt at the company <laughs> and then people were proud of it. Uh, and then yeah. people were telling me, yeah, I don't like Facebook in San Francisco. Yeah. And I was like, how do you not like Facebook? You just like liked Facebook and defended them four months ago and now you all hate them. So it's like, you can see that whole like reinforcing mimicry happening. Yeah, and yeah, and you've got to you've got to kind of pick, and I think one of the ways you can do well in business or do well in life is is kind of see where the where the kind of sheep are going that's kind of off, and not go off that cliff and kind of pick a different path. But you want to be careful with that too, because there is wisdom in the masses too. Yeah. But I think you can kind of strategically pick a path off, and boom, you could be kind of ahead of the herd that way by not just going with the whole masses of. Mm -hmm. And that's what we saw with the cryptocurrency thing. Uh, you know, in two thousand late two thousand seventeen was just like this massive herd mentality that. It got it got me into crypto. Uh, you know, it got me really interested in the technologies, and now I'm still really interested in the technologies. But it was really hard to figure out what is hype and what is not. Um, and I think that's a good good point that you make about business. As the marketing and really choose what is actually going to be sustaining and valuable over the long term. And the Bitcoin one's a good one. That's another good one, right? And, and you know what I did on Bitcoin was I actually had my my wife for the family, I told, I put aside some money. I told her, put that, you know, buy some Bitcoin with this. Not mm -hmm. a lot, but, you know, a decent amount, actually. And then she transferred into escrow. But at that time, there was all this hype. So mm -hmm. I said, just keep it in escrow. Mm -hmm. And then I waited for almost a year. And then on Thanksgiving, when it dropped to the bottom, oh. I bought all the Bitcoin. <laughs> nice. so, yeah. so now I've got a bunch of Bitcoin, like, at the bottom. Nice. But that's exactly the right. Because Bitcoin is a good idea. Yeah. Like I read the white paper on that and I became convinced it's a very solid idea. I liked it better than Ethereum, which actually had some problems later. But anyways, it was a good thought. But the problem was everybody else also thought it was a good thought and they were a little bit too crazy about it. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, forget about it. Mm -hmm. And then once they got too negative, I was like, well, it still is a good thought. And then I, yeah. then I bought a bunch. <laughs> yeah, which has happened a lot. I mean, for people before 2017, it's been up and down and people have been calling Bitcoin the death of Bitcoin for, for years now. Um, yeah, and it might die. I might lose the money, but... That's all right. I also might go up like 100%. It might yeah. go up 1,000. might go up 10,000%. You don't know. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been amazing. How can people find you um, uh, to find out more about what you guys do and, and engage with you personally? Yeah, absolutely. At Peter Rex on Twitter. I, do, I tweet out different stuff, sometimes joking, so don't get offended. Um, and other times just giving some commentaries on how I see things or things about the company, keeping people up to date. And the company is called Trust Work. And you can find that trustwork.com and set up a profile. If you're in Texas, though, or Florida, definitely set up a profile because we're going to be like crushing it there. And we'd love to be able to ha have you helping out. But also, it's going to be good for you because it's an entrepreneurship platform for the future. And it's really the way we are setting this thing up is it's the way I look at it is like it's the opposite of Facebook. So, really, my goal is to kind of build out an alternative that's good for people. And that is about empowering people rather than distracting them. If you kind of see Facebook kind of distracts people a lot, this one is about empowering people to give them a reputation and they can kind of build and, and, and do their work from there, you know? So it's sort of the opposite to Facebook. But set this thing up and um, set up a profile if you're listening and, and get in the game, you know? And, but more importantly, become a fan of Trustwork Nation because Trustwork Nation is about empowering people to rise up. And we could use all the support from anybody out there. We could use your prayers as well. And... And if there's any, if there's anybody out there that uh, that's in the VC land, you know, we are talking to VCs now. Um, so we're starting to have that engagement going on. 
So yeah, you can reach out to me and hit me up. Cool. Thank you so much, Peter. All right, Stuart, you're the best. Take care, man. See ya. Bye now. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next 100 years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks, have a great day.